Hi, I'm Al Hunt. Welcome to the show. You're in the war room. Subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Now let's get on to impeachment and politics. We're discussing the constitutional questions of impeachment and Attorney General William Barr, and we are joined by the, the premier guest. Walter Dellinger, professor of law at Duke University, where he once was acting dean. He headed the Office of Legal Counsel and was solicitor general in the Clinton Justice Department. He has argued scores of cases before the United States Supreme Court. As a University of North Carolina man, he will appreciate this. He is the Michael Jordan of constitutional experts. Walter, <laughs> Walter, it's good to I, have I you. Just, I, just, I just aspire to be Dennis Rodman. Come on, that's my... <laughs> All right. Let me just start off by saying the impeachment uh, is going uh, in, in, in full full gear uh, now or the impeachment process. Let me just start off with a couple of the Republican arguments and then turn it over to James. Uh, one, they say, hey, no crime was committed, so no impeachment. Well, first of all, uh, it's a two-part response. First, it is not necessary by any means that an impeachable offense be a crime. And secondly, yes, of course, of course crimes were committed. There was a... Uh, 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 an attempted uh, obstruction of justice, um, an attempt to uh, extort or bribe a foreign country, and the president didn't even have the um, good grace to use to put his own money on the line. Four hundred million dollars of, uh, of 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 taxpayers' money was used as the uh, uh, as the bait. But let me address the first question because I think it's going to be important in other contexts, and, and that is why an impeachable offense is something different from a crime. The worst offenses committed by a president may not be anything that Congress ever thought they needed to pass a federal, uh, a, a federal statute amending the, the, the penal code to, for example, make it a crime for a president willfully to refuse to defend the United States against foreign attack. You can search the penal code and all the drug, narcotics offenses, and everything else, and not find a crime of a presidential refusal to defend the United States against foreign attack. Um, and so it makes no, no, you know, no sense. By no means is everything that is criminal an impeachable offense. Only um, a small category of matters that are criminal would be impeachable offenses because. Um, uh, to be true to the reading of the Constitution, it would take something much more serious. So, I mean, I think the the um, uh, if we could if we, if we could take just a minute at the outset here to see what the framers thought um, before they settled on the, um, the the current and familiar phraseology that the president and and all other officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. At, at the very beginning of the, of the convention, the president could be impeached for maladministration or neglect of duty. When they gave more power to the president, they thought that it was important to, um, uh, that that was too vague. That meant you served at the, at the, uh, at the pleasure of, of Congress. They tried treason and bribery alone, but thought that wouldn't cover many very serious offenses by a president. So they added this phrase from the English uh, high crimes and misdemeanors, which was a, a term of art, a phrase that meant uh, very serious crimes against the state. And they have to be things like treason and bribery in the same level of seriousness. So I think the best definition 
from the classic uh, uh, Nixon era work by by Charles Black is that that high crimes and misdemeanors are offenses which are one extremely serious. They are in some way corrupt or subvert the political and governmental processes, and finally are plainly wrong, you know, in themselves to a person of honor. And so um, I think here it is it is plainly wrong. The worst way to characterize the offenses of this president is that he has attempted to use the powers of his office corruptly to influence the next presidential election. Which is what he was doing with Ukraine. I would point out you were the prize protege of Yale Law School professor Charles Black, who did write the definitive work on impeachment back in 1974. The second point then make is, okay, fine, shouldn't have been done, but Ukraine got its assistance. The president over there did not announce an investigation of the Bidens. So uh, uh, no, no, no harm, no foul. Well, the three-word answer to that is he got caught. Uh, he attempted to extort from them a public statement. And there's no indication that he wanted Ukrainian officials to investigate uh, young Mr. Biden. He wanted an announcement on CNN that Biden was under investigation uh, and that uh, because uh, he got caught, because someone uh, reported that, uh, the Washington Post was all over it. Congress demanded to know what was going on. They rushed out the funds, um, uh, having uh, you know, completed this attempt. So what we're really talking about is a president who has shown that he is not willing to abide by the constitutional processes of fair elections. He got caught before he uh, completed the uh, demand for a, a public statement of investigating Biden. But let's stop just for a moment on on this particular uh, uh, point because it maps so perfectly on Watergate. Uh, the one misstatement that I think has been made by Adam Schiff is the statement that Watergate was a third-rate burglary. Uh, and this and, and <laughs> now the press is people saying, well, it was just one phone call and nothing came of it. That misses the point that both Watergate and uh, the, the, the present Trumpgate, both of them were efforts to subordinate the Constitution of the United States uh, and, to, and to distort the next presidential election. Uh, and in particular, to do it by getting rid of what they thought was the most serious opposing candidate. So the plumber's operation under Watergate, of which the, the break-in at the, the Watergate Hotel and the ensuing cover-up was just one part, the plumber's operation began as an effort to disrupt the campaign of Democrat Ed Muskie, moderate of Maine, who the polls were showing at the time the plumber's operation started, appeared to be the candidate most likely to beat Richard Nixon. And they actually did disrupt the Muskie campaign, they brought him to tears in Maine with their constant disruptive activities. Um, New Hampshire. In New yeah. Hampshire. And, and I'm sorry, in New Hampshire. You're right. And, and they wound up with a Democratic nominee who lost 49 states. Uh, and, and that was the same thing they were trying to do with Joe Biden this time. And the same thing they're trying to do with Joe Biden this time. And keep in mind the fact that in July, when this undertaking started, uh, uh, Vice President Biden looked more formidable than he does now, perhaps. Uh, but he was certainly polling as the candidate most likely to beat Trump back when they started this operation. So in both cases, uh, not being willing to trust to the people um, 
uh, in a fair election, they they used underhanded and potentially criminal activities uh, in order to interfere with that election. And that's why you can't let it go. Let me turn it over to that distinguished graduate of the LSU Law School, James Carville, to follow up on that. Yeah, I'm going back to the Clinton uh, uh, impeachment and our involvement in, in, in this. It, it, impeachment is a constitutionally sanctioned and authorized process. I don't remember us, I, I certainly remember us attacking Starr and his partisanship and, 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 and everything else. I don't remember anybody saying we're just going to ignore subpoenas. I, I, I really don't. I mean, we, you know, David Kendall and, and, and Nicole went down and argued with the Senate and, and President Clinton actually testified. I mean, it seems to me what they're doing is just we don't accept the legitimacy of this of this investigation, which in itself is a is a crime. I think I I, I totally agree. It's a it's a, it's a, a obstruction of justice, and I think that it would be a mistake not to make this part of any set of of articles of impeachment. It's just astounding and jaw dropping that uh, they would not comply with with congressional oversight which has been done through the issuance of perfectly valid subpoenas. Now, there is a, a, an argument that, that some discussions between a president and his most senior aides may be, may be protected by, by a presumptive executive privilege. I think that can largely be overcome in the case of, of an impeachment inquiry uh, where you need to find out everything. But, but let's assume that there is some residual executive privilege. They're claiming... The president has ordered everybody, people he never met or heard of, not to comply with subpoenas. One of the people that that testified uh, over the president's objection, for whom they had claimed this 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 executive privilege, was by my count a fourth level down person at OMB, four levels down. President never saw this guy. He may never have been in the West Wing. It's it's and and, and what was their basis? As James noted, their basis was they have denominated the inquiry and the other congressional inquiries, like the one for the tax returns, as illegitimate. And so they have self-described it. They have made a unilateral decision that it is illegitimate. And I, I think it has to be itself a, um, a grounds of impeachment that, that they won't turn this stuff over. You know, I, I, I think my own view is this. This all started with Bush v. Gore. And what that showed them was we're just going to overturn a state-authorized recount and stop it. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to get away with it. And you know what happened? They did. They just did. They just rammed through it. They went through 2015. They rammed through every gerrymander that you could imagine. They, they, they wrote maps that... An ordinary person would have never thought of to do it. They just got it through it. Then Merrick Garland, they just said, we're not going to do it. We don't care. And they keep winning. And what's going to happen at the end of this is they'll impeach him, and the Republicans will say it was all make up something. I mean, just make up this about Ukraine at the Senate Intelligence Committee. But they're not going to stop because, in their opinion, they're getting away with it. And 
that's a dangerous place for, 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 for a country to go, but that is what they say. We just gut it out, and every time we gut it out, Bush was president. We control the Supreme Court. We control the federal judiciary. We, we have gerrymandered every seat that we could find. And all of this, to me, is just destructive to the country. James, you make a very good point. I don't know what all they taught you at LSU Law School, but you made a hell of a point that this starts with Bush versus Gore. I don't, I haven't seen that from anybody, but I think you're right. I remember thinking, because uh, Ted Olson had been someone I had known and had been helpful to me when I uh, took over the Office of Legal Counsel, which he had once headed. I was really when when he filed his his petition to ask the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene and set aside the, the Florida. Uh, court's final determination, which was going to be the re- a recount that would have shown that Gore won. Uh, when he filed his petition, I thought it's so embarrassing that they had no legal arguments for U.S. Supreme Court intervention and that it would be really an embarrassment uh, to Ted Olson to have filed that brief. <laughs> and he winds up winning. What they taught me at LSU Law School is the same thing that they teach at Duke Law School or Harvard School, is that you can understand the law. You can interpret the law. At some point, you can, can manipulate it to your client's favor. But the one thing you can't do is ignore the law. Right. Right. No one. I never had a law professor. I don't think you ever told a student you can ignore the statute. You can read it with another statute, or you can you can doubt the constitutionality of the statute. Or you can say it means one thing, or you can talk about legislative extent. But what they do, as I said, doesn't exist. You know, James. I think you've taken this to a level that goes beyond. Uh, even the the, the, the the present impeachment. And that is the question about what is happening to the legitimacy of constitutional government. When you, you know, when you, when you, when you, when you put it that way, think about the fact that we, we now have four justices who were appointed by presidents who came into office having lost the national popular vote. Um, and if Trump were to be reelected, we could have of solid majority of the Supreme Court, and, and, and if he is, re, quote, reelected, uh, he will do so by having lost between 5 and 10 million votes nationally. You know, you have to wonder how long states like California uh, and Washington and Oregon uh, that would be an economic juggernaut um, in alliance with uh, perhaps, you know, Massachusetts, New York, uh, Illinois, um, or on their own, an economic powerhouse on their own. How long they would put up with a list of grievances about this of the the kind that we have from this president that I think are much more serious than the list of grievances against King George. They were issued by states, by colonies who wanted to be independent states in 1776. Uh, you've got a court that, when they struck down the part of the Voting Rights Act. They were substituting their judgment for Congress. The, 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 the Civil War, the Great Civil War Amendment says Congress shall have the power to enforce this. And, and, and the voting rights decision, they had no business, not was just not wrongly decided, they had no business deciding it. So between that and green lighting, gerrymandering, it's... Um, uh, look, look at what Barr did to the Mueller report. Right. Just kept it under wraps and lied. They don't care. You, you understand that, that you and you teach your students and your whole career was how to deal with the law. You say, well, I, I see it this way. You see it that way. What they do is they just ignore it. And I, I literally 
There's no other explanation that I can come to. It's Pisu, you know, like every law student goes, Pisu's D, okay? Right. D says, <laughs> yeah, I, it, the D has to answer the lawsuit. Right. Has to acknowledge the legitimacy of it. You can say, well, you know, it, it was a comparative negligence. Or I don't know what the hell it was. But you have a bunch of defense, but you just can't say, well, that's it. I ignore it. I don't care. It's not the law. No, no professor ever, ever said ever gave you the hypothetical and never occurred to me. Well, suppose D has exclusive control over nuclear weapons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then, 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 then how does D it's respond? The attorney right? general is well, it's well, just let's, a, let's, let's talk about this attorney general. Walter, when he was appointed, I talked to you and a number uh, of other uh, like-minded scholars who said, look, he's very conservative. We'll disagree with him on issues like criminal justice, immigration, and court appointments but he's a straight shooter. Well, starting with the Mueller report reaction, which was incredibly, I think, I would call it dishonest. It was certainly disingenuous. He now appears to be taking issue with a long-awaited Inspector General's report that the FBI investigation into the Russian interference in the American election to help Trump was legitimate. The, 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 do, do you still think he's a straight shooter? He's Trump's attorney general, not America's. No, I don't think he was. He didn't shoot straight on the Mueller report. Uh, by any means, he was he was deliberately misleading. When you read the report, it was just shocking to see, uh, you know how how distorted it was. I think, by the way, going back to where we started the conversation and bringing it right up to where we are now, the Mueller report. I it's a hard question, but I think it would be a mistake for the Democrats to continue to walk away from the Mueller report. And not to go back. And uh, it's just, if you reread, just reread the executive summary on obstruction of justice. I mean, Mueller concludes, you know, in 444 pages, 1,200 footnotes, 100 contacts, you know, in the first part between the Trump organization. What he says when on no collusion, and I wouldn't go back to that, but all he says was we can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that there was an actual agreement between Trump campaign officials and the Russians. Not that there wasn't an actual agreement. We can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And not that they weren't acting in concert. It's just that we don't have an actual agreement. When you get to obstruction of justice, Mueller lets us down by not stating what obviously is the sentence that would be his conclusion that the president committed multiple, even though we cannot indict him under Department of Justice policy, we nonetheless conclude and, and, and must so state that he committed multiple acts of felonious obstruction of justice. And uh, he said, you know, if we believed he could be cleared, we would have cleared him. We can't. We can't clear him. And so it's, it's, it, it, it's just shocking. I mean, he, 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 on multiple occasions, he tried to shut down the investigation into, into the Russian interference uh, in the election. He ordered... Uh, uh, he ordered the White House counsel to have him fired. It, it's over and over again. It's the dishonesty of the attorney general. Once that got out there, right, we were dishonest in New Hampshire in 1992 when we came out early and declared victory and Sanders actually beat us. All right, That's a, a kind of manipulation of public opinion, a manip, you know, a getting ahead of the story. This is not the attorney general looking at an authorized report and lying to the American people about it. That's true. It, it's uh, that's what this is, and, and this is now normal. I think we need to see the links between uh, 
the Mueller report and where we are with the with the more recent matter of Ukraine. Ukraine is just the president's hand getting caught in the cookie jar. Uh, but what we have is uh, a consistent effort. I think he knows he cannot win a fair election. And 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 once again, I mean, Kathleen Hall Jamison is going to have a new version out of her book in January. Concluded that it's that it's very likely that the, the Russians handed the election to uh, to Hillary based on in-depth studies. But what what he's doing now to blame Ukraine is to exonerate Russia. To exonerate Russia is to tell Putin, we have your here's how much we have your back. We're not only not going to respond to your direct attack on American democracy. We're going to even blame someone else. We're going to help you go look for the real killers. It's the OJ defense. And, and that is the, the, that's the, the ultimate green light to the Russians to go all out to deliver the next election uh, for Trump is for Trump to even deny that they, that, that they did it in 2016 and that they are working the, uh, as we speak to disrupt the election. I, I just want to make sure you're right, what, what you're saying, that, that, that we have it right. You would advise the Judiciary Committee to put the Mueller obstruction charges in the bills of impeachment? Yes, I would. Okay. Terrific. Boy, you've been wonderful. Thank you for enlightening us. Thank you so much, Prof. I get a free, like, I'm, like I've got a free law school lesson, you know? How, how fascinating. <laughs> Great to talk to you guys. You made the best point of the day, James. Take care. Take care, Walter. All right, bye-bye. Okay, James, we've talked impeachment uh, with uh, one of the great experts in the country. Let's talk politics now. The big news this week is Kamala Harris, who people like Rachel Maddow was six months ago was saying is going to be the Democratic nominee, dropped out of the race this week. Why did Harris never take off? If anybody wants to know, read a piece in the New York Times of Jonathan Martin earlier this week. It, it literally, it will be used as, you know, like the Harvard Business School uses these case studies or you go to law school, Walter Dillinger teaches you how you learn everything through this one case. This is an example of everything that you should not do in a campaign of the Harris campaign doing it. I, 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 it was, if they could do 10 things wrong, they did all 10. Maybe 11. And you're right. She, maybe 11. <laughs> and she came on. I mean, she was like a big, rangy, you know, double-A person that was just crushing fastballs, and people were coming from miles around to see him play. And then the first time a major league slider came, in the way he was. And, and I mean, she looked so good on paper, and you know, everything about her was compelling. And she was kind of bigger than life, and she was, you know, mixed-race United States senator. Female Obama. Female, yes. But— at first slider, she 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 didn't even come close, and she just sat there. She not, I mean, from everything, from having two headquarters to having an assistant in charge of the campaign to, you know, trying five different things at the same time. I mean, it was just a, it was it was a disastrous campaign. That woman has a lot of a lot of future ahead of her, you know. But I don't see. I'll be honest with you, Albert. I I don't. I don't know if some of these Democrats are trying to win. There's no malarkey. I, I'd love to know how they came up with that. That's how, Joe Biden. Who yeah. sat in a meeting? Yeah, who sat in a meeting and said, we need to get some more younger voters, so let's talk about malarkey? Yeah, that was probably Joe. You know, let me, I let thought me just it was pick Ed up on, Markey. 
Uh, let me just pick up on that. I agree with everything you said, and I love that John Martin piece. I would just note very parochially that I wrote an abbreviated version of that in a column a month ago. Uh, and the point was that uh, John McCain one time advised John Kerry, you know, this hero stuff is great. We're both heroes. This is 2002. But when you, when you, what a hero does, it gets you in the room. And then you got to have something to say. And there was no bigger hero than John Glenn. And once he got in the room in his presidential quest, he didn't have much to say. Kamala, not that she was a hero, but as you say, on paper, she was a great prospect. And she got in that room, and she didn't have anything to say. And with, with people paying attention like they are, I mean, one thing. You, I mean, at first debate, when she didn't know anything about health care, you, you kind of knew, gee, this is not going well. You did. You know, you, you mentioned the Biden thing. Let me, let me go. I'm going to stay on the bees for a minute and not Biden. Um, Steve Bullock also dropped out this week. And Michael Bennett, who probably is the favorite candidate uh, for, the, uh, uh, for Carville and Hunt, is just going nowhere, I have to admit. I hate to admit that. These are two guys who, again, are so impressive on paper. I mean, Bennett, probably there's no more. There's no United States senator that I would be as confident would be as good a president as Michael Bennett. And Steve Bullock was just the prototype of what Democrats need, a really mainstream progressive who won big in a red state. Why, James? Does it say something about the system or about uh, them? I, I, I don't know. Probably a little bit. About, I, I'm, I'm for Michael Bennett. I'm not even being cute about it. And say, why am I? Because what I say, if 25 people with 2020 vision say, James, you got some shaving cream on your earlobe, you probably have shaving cream on your earlobe. Well, if 25 people whose opinions I respect start the conversation, what, James, you know, Michael Bennett would be the best president, then God damn it, why not be for him? And, and I'm going to, I mean, it probably won't win, but in New Hampshire, anything can happen. And I, I think that if he goes up there and really engages and, and fit, has a campaign that fits his skill set, and that would be, you know, small events with a lot of dialogue and did a lot of them in the course of the day. I can't tell you that he'd win. He probably won't. But I, just what I know about New Hampshire, they will give him a look. If, if you go up there and ask for a look, they'll give you a look. This is your idea. But, you know, one day meet with veterans, one day with nurses, one day with Trump voters, one day with NRA gun people. And Michael, Michael Bennett will never shine in a eight person debate because he's not a demagogue. He's not going to give a great speech because that's not what he does well. He's not going to have far better TV ads than anybody else. But what he can do is sit at that table, and I'm stealing this from you, James. He can sit at that table for an hour and a half, and he can have a dialogue and impress people probably more than anyone else in the field. I begged him to do that. And he said, all you got to do is just put it online. It doesn't, you know, just do it online. Let everybody watch it. Michael Bennett talks to Iowa teachers. Michael Bennett talks to Iowa farmers. Michael Bennett t talks to New Hampshire conservatives. Michael Bennett talks to... You know, uh, African American church goers in Charleston. Michael Bennett talks to incarcerated, you know, people in halfway houses. He could do anything. He just put it online and put people in a position where they can succeed. That's what you got to do in politics. And I, I, I don't, I don't, because to me it's it's obvious. He's not going to. You're right. He's not going to succeed in a debate. He's not going to succeed. You know, giving a fiery speech and you know among hay bales, anything like that, where he's going to succeed is by his resolve, by his knowledge, by his depth, by his uh, politeness, his humanity. That's what people want. Yeah. But you got to put you got to put him in their way he can succeed. 
Well, he could a he could win uh, win and b he could govern and boy those are two pretty important requisites right now. I was going to switch to one other someone else. Uh, Pete Buttigieg is having his moment uh, in the uh, in the sun now, uh, coming up in the polls, uh, doing really well in Iowa and well in New Hampshire too. Right now, you are in the Buttigieg campaign strategist. Uh, weekly meeting on Sunday. What are you? What are you thinking? What are you worried about? What are you anticipating? What are you advising? Well, the first thing that they they worried about because everybody keeps doing it and they keep responding is can he connect with African American voters? All right, that 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 seems to be the obsession of the people covering the campaign. It seems to be the obsession with the Buttigieg campaign. Uh, I was at thing last night to DGA, a, a, a very prominent. The African-American political operative attorney said, you know, Buddha Judge was in the state. And I, I think what, something I probably know a little bit more about most consultants is African-American voters in the South. And if you try to connect with them, they're going to figure that out. And the more natural you are and the more comfortable you are, the more that they're going to give you a listen. And he just got to take a little because culturally. He's viewed, you know, and in the South Bend, he said, well, the schools are segregated. They're bringing everything up. And it's not a given that he will be able to connect with black voters. That's not a given. But he needs he needs to get a strategy. And my strategy would be just be as natural as you can. You know, you know, talk about the struggle. I I wouldn't make any references, but I know discrimination and and you do. But, you, you know, talk about the struggle and talk about all this stuff. And he's got to try to break in and. You know, he could probably get some of the younger African-Americans, and he, but the, the older ones vote a lot, and he's got to break into that. And, he, you know, they got to deal with it. But don't try too hard. Yeah, and it is a challenge. Now, he had a good appearance this week. He went to the Reverend William Barber's church in North Carolina, who was the, I think probably it's safe to say, the most prominent African-American leader in, in, uh, uh, in the Tar Heel State. And he apparently made a good impression. Uh, and he did almost exactly what you're talking about. He didn't try to, you know, didn't try to soar because he, he's not going to soar now, but just was, uh, you know, uh, was himself. And it is a challenge, but that's the sort of thing he has to do. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, the definition of a great politician is someone who is really trying but doesn't look like they're trying. It's the definition of a great athlete. I mean, you know, Willie Mays never looked like he tried. Believe me, he was trying like crazy, all right? Reagan or Clinton or even Obama, they never, they, never looked like they, they never looked like they were sweating. If you look like you're trying too hard, you, you become Bobby Jindal or you become Kamala Harris or you become, you're just trying in, in to, 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 to trying to do what? No one knows, but it, it, it looks desperate. Great politicians always always, always are cool under fire and they, they look, they, they place themselves in the most natural position. And that would be my advice to Bennett. That would be my advice to Buttigieg. Don't just be as natural as you can. Talk about issues about the entire country. And as you start winning, they'll start looking at you hard. James, one of our great weekly highlights, our own Jimmy the Greek, Christy Numbers Harvey. What do you have for us today, Christy? Hey, fellas. Uh, I do have a couple of numbers for you today. First up is 25%, as in there's new research out that shows one out of four teens 
uh, that's 25%, have an unhealthy addiction to their smartphones that the researchers are saying uh, could be bigger than health problem, a bigger health problem than substance abuse or uh, gaming, which are usually the two uh, addictions that plague teens the most. So uh, I was wondering, Hunt, I think I know this answer since I get texts from you every 20 minutes or so, but do you think you're addicted to your, your smartphone? Oh, I think it's a lot more than every 20 minutes. Uh, uh, Christian has been for the last 25 <laughs> years. I guess I didn't have smartphones 25 years ago, to your great relief. Uh, Christy used to work with me. Um, I, I don't have, fortunately, I don't have any teenagers in the house anymore, but I'm afraid when it comes to my iPhone that I act like one. I am on it all the time. And they go through these periodic times where you should give up your iPhone for a day or even a weekend. Uh, I start and then I cheat. Uh, I, I just, uh, I, I love it and I'm attached to it and, then, uh, and I can't, uh, I can't uh, drop it. I actually cannot imagine a world where you're cut off like that, Al. <laughs> no, all right. Look, I don't, what, of course I use it all the time. But what, what, why is this, this, when I was young, they said porn was a public health crisis. Well, I watch porn all the time. I don't know. I don't think I'm any worse for it. I mean, I mean, it's not a, they're like they're out there. I mean, you ought to watch where they're going. They get run over by a car. But I don't know if this is like a, a public health crisis on a magnitude. Oh, God, we've got to do something. You know, they're looking at Playboy magazine in the back of the newsstand. I mean, of course, all, everybody's addicted to it. I can't go anywhere without the thing. Well, James, you can have a twofer now because with your iPhone, you can now look up your porn sites. All right. All right. <laughs> but, I, but my point is, I don't know if this is a giant public health crisis. It's something we should do. But that's all my, my only point. All right. Moving on, Christy. The second number. I've got a couple of numbers on a more serious note about rural America. Uh, as you know, Uncle Joe is on his no malarkey tour across Iowa. And as a child of Delaware, I uh, can call him Uncle Joe, of course. And so I started to think about these rural issues. And did you guys know that the poverty rate in rural America is 16.4% compared to urban America, where it's 12.9%. And food insecurity, uh, where people don't always have enough money to buy all the food for everybody in their family, is 12% in rural America, whereas urban America, it's it's 10.8%. Um, yet rural America consistently goes red in elections, and there just seems to be just such a disconnect with this. James, I was wondering if you had thoughts on that. Well, I got, first of all, uh, people in urban America have probably five to seven, eight years more life expectancy than people in rural America. That's just a fact. Also, uh, six, almost two-thirds the growth that has occurred since Trump has been president have been in counties that the Democrats carried, that Hillary carried. So it's not it's killing them. That, that red state governance is actually killing people by not expanding health care, by, by not but, – but also – as opposed to people in Democrats in urban America who are doing good, looking down on them, we ought to figure a way to go out and engage in rural America and try to be a majoritarian party and spend time out there and talk about the kind of things we don't. I don't know why we don't have a, a rural crisis center in this country. It's, it's, it's a problem. And, it, it, and by the way, there's a lot of African-American people that live in rural America. I mean, I mean look around. A, a lot of Native Americans live in rural America. They're being drugged down by this, too. So I think what, you, what you're talking about is an enormous issue in American politics. The geographic divide, divide is starting to look like, like the, the income inequality divide. Yeah. Well, James has been on this for a long time, uh, and he's absolutely right. And the Democrats have really abdicated 
in a lot of those places. Look, I think having spent a little bit of time uh, in places like Western Pennsylvania, uh, I think some of it is cultural. Some of it is things like guns and abortion, which are going to be hard. Uh, there's no way to compromise on some of that as much as you'd like to. But some of it also is a feeling that the Democrats represent the elites and they look down on people. I was in this little town in western Pennsylvania, James, right before the 16th election. Paul Begala suggested I go there, Manassas. Bob Casey used to go there all the time. And, you know, I had, this was right before the election, and I must have had three or four people say to me, literally, volunteer, when Hillary Clinton talked about the deplorable, she was talking about me. And somehow Democrats have to get out of that. I mean, Donald Trump is an elitist of the first order, but he is so shrewd and so disingenuous, he convinces them he's one of them. And, and that's a challenge for Democrats. It is, but you got to engage, right? Yeah, you do. And there's a lot of, you know, you got to, and, and all we got to do is just not get slaughtered out there. Get, you get, cut it to 75-25, not 85-15. And if they keep going, their voting behavior continues to harden. And, of course, you've got a substantial number of Democrats like at the New York Times op-ed page that talk about the choice of Democrats is obviously they got to double down on their urban base. Okay, well, then what do you say when you say 18% of the country elects 52 senators? Then they start mumbling and, you know, you're not woke enough or whatever the hell they tell you. I mean, these people are really, really, really stupid on steroids. Yeah, they are. And as you said, if you look at, at why the Democrats were able to win in deep red states, like the governor's races at least, in deep red states like Kentucky and Louisiana uh, last month, it was because they cut into those margins in those rural areas. They didn't win them, didn't win a lot of them, but they cut into those margins. Uh, numbers, you've done it again. And uh, we will, you'll, you'll, you'll come back next week with a new challenge, okay? All right, guys. See you next time. Stay off those phones. By the way, if you're going to use your numbers, would you use them, please, to re-sign Rendon and Strasburg? All right? Oh, man. I'm trying. I promise. James, what have you read that strikes you the last couple of days? I, I read a, in a New York Review of Books, which, I, you know, I, for me, I find about one, it bats about 100. But boy, when it, it's Dave Kingman, when it hits, it hits, it hits hard. And there's a piece in there by an academic named Joseph O'Neill, I think, I, I, about two books that two, I think both of them were women academics, wrote about how the Democratic Party is going about the wrong way. That how, I think essentially I'd like to get Professor O'Neill on is that they, they need to organize more from the ground up like the Republicans uh, did in 2010. Uh, there's no doubt that they caught us sleeping in 2010 and have just racked up through just, you know, ruthlessness and, you know, out-organizing the Democrats, you know, took over power in a lot of states. We're starting to finally get some of it back. But as we go into 2020, I think this is the kind of new kind of thinking that people in politics should at least consider engaging in. I, I got to... I got to read it a couple of three more times before I can totally digest it. Well, okay, I, that's a great idea. Let's get him on the show. Yeah, let's move to the back page, and we have gone and talked a lot about politics and impeachment, which is kind of a downer. Let's talk football, uh, especially the National Football League. Now, with no hometown team, this is me, unlike you, to cheer for. And concerns, I do have more concerns about the violence of the game. So I've lost some of the intense interest I used to have. But as we head into the final four weeks of this season, I can't remember where there were ever so many good teams, all of, all of whom I think have a shot at winning the Super Bowl. 
I mean, it really is, uh, you know, an incredibly impressive top-heavy league right now. I, I got to agree with you. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit bored into college football and you all, but I like. Uh, yeah, we'll do that San next Francisco, week. San <laughs> Francisco, Baltimore, Seattle, Kansas City, the Saints for sure. I, I, I mean, the, anybody could win. New England, I, I think the, their demise has been exaggerated somewhat. Something tells me that Belichick and Brady have sch- had schemes going up there, just like the demise of Alabama football. Don't buy that. Don't buy that at all. Uh, but yes, it is, and the playoffs, at, at least going into them, man, they look like they're going to be great. I mean, and and you can't say it, it's not like Golden State where you knew they were going to win. You don't have any idea who's going to win this thing. I agree. You know, I tried to rank them just before I came over here, and and if I ranked them right now, I would have number one the Ravens. They have an MVP quarterback, a great defense, and a great coach. Two would be your Saints uh, and the uh, the indomitable Drew Brees. Three would be the Patriots. You're right. You never count out Brady or Belichick uh, in a playoff. They usually rise to it. And fourth, I would have the Seahawks with Russell Wilson. So that's my top four, and I, I would know. not be I at all surprised well, I, if the Packers, 49ers, or the Buffalo Bills, or even conceivably right. the Texans. I mean, none of those right. are outlandish choices. But I, 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 think the 40, I think the 49ers are really good. I mean, look, Baltimore beat them on the road, you know, by field goal. I watched them beat Green Bay. I mean, they beat the snot out of the Packers. And, I mean, they're, they're, they're tough. They, they, somehow or another, when you think of San Francisco, you equate maybe just because of the city or Bay Area, yeah, yeah. some element of softness to it. That is not a soft team. <laughs> not at all. No, it's not. I and mean, and, and we've got to play them Sunday. And That'll be a great game. And then the pro- I think it's the final game of the season for that conference is the 49ers and the Seahawks. Man, well, that, the first game between those two was fabulous, and the second game is going to be just as good. Who's the league MVP now? Is it Russell Wilson? I think it's probably Lamar, Lamar Jackson. But, uh, you know, again, there's five candidates. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I mean, uh, you know, Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers uh, end up taking it to the Super Bowl. I guess they vote before the playoffs, but, uh, you know, you can't rule them out. It's, uh, it's a, as I say, I, yeah, I, th- I think it's going to go there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to go to, to Wilson or Lamar Jackson. I, I I agree. I think they're certainly the uh, favorites right now. You know, one more note about about professional football. This week, Jerry Jones in Dallas uh, said, you know, he's basically upset. He's probably going to replace the coach at the end of the year, and Dan Snyder is going to have a review of his whole organization. I mean, Dan Snyder and Jerry Jones have not had teams in the Super Bowl for over for a quarter century. Uh, they both they both have not had six. I mean, the Redskins worse. They both, for this entire uh, decade or two, uh, have been also Rams, with occasional exceptions for the Cowboys. The problem with Derry Jones and Dan Snyder is to look in the mirror. The reason that the Roonies and Bob Kraft win is because they have good ownership that picks good people and doesn't interfere. That's the simple lesson. Yeah, I, I would add the Saints to that. We've been a pretty elite football team here for a while. You have. You have. Yeah, last year, you know, we had that, we had that terrible call, and we had the thing in Minnesota the year before that. We won a lot of games, and and, and but, you know, Ms. Benson does not interfere with Dennis Lausch and Sean Payton and those guys running the team. That's either. the secret. And, and, I mean, you can just look across and you see success like that. The Rizzo's let. I mean, the learners let Mike Rizzo do what he had to do. Yeah. Coach Osriel lets Joe Brady coach the quarterback. I yeah. mean, there's a success formula here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. And, you know, Jerry Jones was once hot. And, uh, you know, he's, I think he began to, you know, believe his own clippings, and he has interfered, uh, not as much as Dan Snyder. 
uh, and he's not nearly the bad owner that Dan Snyder is. But, you know, when you haven't been in a Super Bowl in 25 years, I think you've had a losing record uh, net over the last 20 years. It tells you something. It's not just one coach, not just one quarterback. The, the problem is you kind of – you kind of like Jerry Jones because he, you know, he know he is, but he's, he's a very, rascal. He's very good at what he does. He's like, yes, yeah, he's a hustler. Okay, yeah. he's an operator, and he yeah. doesn't. You don't like Danny Snyder, yeah. all right? You know, you, you watch Jerry Jones in the game, and he's getting all mad and fretting around, and you hear him, and you know, he's a real in that kind of bigger than life Texas way. I've, I've met him four or five times, and he just—he's just a salesman. That's all he is. And, and, but he's like—he's he, not full of shit because he's got a most valuable, probably franchise in professional sport. Dan Snyder is just not—you don't even—you're not even interested in talking to him. You don't care what he says. He's just not a. In addition to being a terrible owner, he's not a very compelling person. Oh, it's it's really you know if you look at awful franchises in professional sports, uh, the Redskins are in the top three or four. There's no question of that. And I, and I agree about Jerry Jones, but Jerry, I think probably Jerry Jones would give up some of that value, not all of it for sure. You know, if he could get back to Super Bowls and winning championships, and he can't do that until uh, until he he starts to delegate and realize he can't. Yeah, call Jason shots. Garrett is like a low level infection. You can't get rid of it, and, but it's. It's not going to kill you, and he just he, every every time he gets ready to fire him, he wins a game. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Also, coaches, Dak Prescott is good. Well, Dak Prescott is very good, but also coaches go back. Remember a year ago, they were talking about the L.A. Rams close Sean Sean McVay. He was the future of the NFL. Where are the Rams now? I mean, uh, this is a, this is a tough leg. There aren't very many Belichicks. Everybody's good looking for the next Sean McVay. Right, right. Got to look for the next Bill Belichick. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is, this has <laughs> been terrific. We'll look for for the not the next, but the James Carville uh, a week from now. Subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be with you next week.